Well, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, Jesse, for filling in while Michael's away. Really appreciate you guys directing our attention to our great and mighty God. What a wonderful thing. Father's Day. We've said a lot about it already, but we truly love fathers and want to encourage them on in that great and high task that they have been given. Our, uh, our Wednesday evening program, uh, children's program, Kids Rock, it is finished for the summer, and yet... Uh, the Greg Thieland and a bunch of the fathers took some of our boys out on a camping trip, and uh, they had a wonderful time. We just want to show you a quick recap of that event. We're going to throw it up on the screens. Sounds like a, it was a great time. We know that being a dad is not an easy thing. It's a wonderful thing, and yet it is not an easy thing, especially when the bar has been set so high by the great God of the universe. But what an incredible opportunity we have to point our children to Jesus Christ. So if you are a dad, a grandfather, uh, whatever stage in life you are, we just want to thank you and pray God's blessing upon you. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians? We're in chapter 1 still, but we won't be there for long. We're moving on. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading in a few moments, uh, verse 15. Would you agree that it would be a really sad thing, it would be such a sad thing to struggle through life and suffer and endure and deal with all of the crud that life brings when something existed to make life so much easier. Maybe there was a solution right around the corner. Maybe it was right under your nose. But wouldn't it be a sad thing if you weren't aware of it? And what if you had a, an illness? A disease. It's painful. It's life-threatening. But what if there was a, a cure? What if there was a medication or a procedure that you could, you could have done and it was co actually covered in full by your insurance? Wouldn't that be a great thing? You'd want to know about it, right? What a tragedy it would be if you didn't know about it. What if you were stranded on the side of the road and you got steam coming up from your, your, the hood of your car and you don't know what to do and, and you were unaware that that little card in your wallet with, with three A's on it meant that you could have help there by your side in, in a matter of an hour or so? Or what if you were just struggling to make ends meet and financially you're just, ah, how am I going to do this? Where's my next meal going to come from? When unbeknownst to you, your grandfather set up a savings account for you that has now matured into a small fortune, if only you knew about it. It'd be such a sad thing to go through life struggling, unaware that there was some help, some, some, something that would benefit your life, something that would make your life so much better, but you didn't know about it. I went through the first half of my life not having any clue what good Chinese food tasted like. It's a tragedy. It's just, just a tragedy. 
the famous Russian, Russian author Leo Tolstoy. He tells a story of this beggar who would sit on the street and, and he just he just begged for, for pennies, any, anything you've got from passers-by. And he was so focused on just the, the, the dire situation of his poverty. He had nothing. So engrossed with his situation that he failed to realize that the pot that he was sitting on was made of solid gold. Even though the Christians in Ephesus had placed their trust in God. Paul knew that there were some things that these Ephesians needed to know. And if they knew them, their lives were going to be blessed in a way that, that they wouldn't otherwise. And the same goes for you and for me. Again, we're reading in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Would you stand with me as we, re- we read from God's word? And we'll read to the end of the chapter here. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul says he doesn't stop praying for the church in Ephesus because he's heard of their faith. And not only has he heard of their faith, he knows he's heard that they are actually sharing the love of Christ with others. He knows that not only have they made a profession of faith, but that he's, there's evidence. There's evidence in their lives that God has done a work in them that he's transforming them through the knowledge of Jesus Christ into the image of Jesus Christ as they now have received Christ's love and now they're turning and sharing Christ's love with others. That's a, that's a defining characteristic, right? Of a person who's truly saved. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, there are so many people who have raised their hand or who have stepped out onto that ball field or maybe have come forward in a church service and they've prayed a prayer expressing their trust in Jesus Christ. But the reality is, if that profession of faith isn't followed by some type of transformation, some type of evidence that you actually are trusting in Christ, well, then we have reason for caution, don't we? 
Because faith is more than just reciting a prayer. It's, it's about what you believe and what you trust in. And we all know that what you believe and what you trust in, well, that makes a difference in how you behave and how you act. This is one of the beautiful things about being connected to the family of God through church membership. And we have the benefit of entering in to a special relationship with one another where we can encourage each other on towards Christ, but we can also come alongside one another for course correction when we wander. And we do often wander, don't we? We tend to just veer off a little bit, get distracted by that over there, or that glittery thing over there. So easy to do. That's why it's such a blessing to be a part of the body of Christ. It's, it's a gift, really. That God designed the local church in such a way that it, it helps us confirm the reality that, yeah, I have trusted in Christ. And it pushes us on a trajectory towards Christ-likeness. If you see things in my life that are unchrist-like, I want you to come alongside me and say, Brother, this isn't right. And to love me enough to say, there are things in your life that, that aren't consistent with God's word. You need to make some adjustments here. Because this is a path. If, if you've placed your trust in Christ, if you believe what this says, then you're going down a path that is leading you towards destruction. This isn't good. And if the Holy Spirit is truly within me, your words are going to resonate with my soul. He's going to convict my soul and lead me towards repentance and restoration. That's what this is all about, right? That's what church discipline is all about. This isn't about just coming up to believers who uh, you know, are, are messing around over here, aren't doing things the way we like, and we say, hey, hey, buddy, come here. Come. Slap them a little bit. Get your act together. Come on. Get your act together or get out. No, that's not what it is. It's about us caring enough for one another, like, like the Ephesians loved one another, coming alongside each other and saying, hey, where you're going isn't good. Let's, let's come back here. It's one of the great blessings of being part of a church. And how encouraging it must have been for these Ephesians to hear Paul's words to them. He says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in, in my prayers. Paul's recognizing that, that these, these are fellow believers whom Christ died for. And he thanks God for them. But he doesn't stop at thanking God for them, does he? He goes on. Not only is he thanking God for them in his prayers, but he's praying that they might grow in their knowledge, isn't he? And he writes, verse 16, I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So he knows that they've joined the team. He knows that their faith is real. He knows that they are fellow believers. And he's praying now that God's going to take them further. That God is going to grant them knowledge. There are things that they need to know that are going to be a great benefit to their lives and to their existence as a church body. See, the reality is you can know that you are a sinner. 
And you can know that you can't save yourself. You can know that God in his great love has sent Jesus Christ down to take our place. You can know that by trusting in the work that Christ has done, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, you can know that your faith is in Christ, that you are washed clean, that you are forgiven. And yet there's more good stuff that God has for you. There's more good stuff. It's kind of like if you, if you got a, a smartphone for the first time. And, well, I got a lot of messages. You know that you can... Are you, are you texting me right now? You know that you can make calls, that you can get those text messages. You know that maybe you can check the weather or do some map stuff. But what if you never knew that you could download these things called apps to this phone? Whoa, you'd be totally missing out. I mean, what if you never knew that you could download an app and you could order a burrito exactly the way you want it, right on this phone, and have it hot and ready for you when you go over to Chipotle? This is amazing. Or what if you never knew that you could, you could spend countless hours of your life wasted catapulting little cartoon birds on the little green pigs? You'd be totally... Actually, that's not a good illustration because that's not really life-changing. Life Paul's telling these Ephesians, I have life-changing stuff. He wants them to know that they're... I want you to experience the fullness of the Christian life that God desires for you. What do, what do you want them to know? This is, may seem basic. This may not seem revolutionary. And yet that's the beauty of, of God's message to us. It's not that complicated. It's not, we're so often just thick-headed people, we, think, we try to make it more complicated than it is, and we miss out on the, the thing that he's really trying to get us to know. What did he want them to know? He wants them to know himself better. God wants us to know himself Better, Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in what? In the knowledge of Him. Why is knowing God so important? I mean, isn't that, the, that one, Christianity 101? Okay, God. Okay, we got that. Now moving on, right? Paul says, no, I want you to, to grow. I'm praying that, that our Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Why is knowing God so important? Well, for starters, the Bible tells us that if you don't know God, you don't even know the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, uh, Proverbs uh, 1.11.10. I might have that reference wrong. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't know Him, even in the slightest, the smallest amount, to walk away with a sense of, whoa. You hear the name of God and you go, whoa. We hear it dropped all the time, don't we? Oh my this, oh my that. We treat it with such flippancy. I wonder, is that a sign that maybe we... We're really clueless as to who this God is. That, that when we hear the name God, that there should be a sense of reverence and respect and awe. 
It's the beginning of true wisdom. Paul shows us in Romans 1 how the folly of humanity begins when people refused this God. Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And he doesn't stop there. Images resembling birds and animals and creeping things. Really? You exchange the glory of the immortal God for creeping things? How's their thinking futile? Well, it's bent on looking for satisfaction. It's bent on worshiping things other than God. It's bent on looking for safety and security and sustenance in things that are so much lesser than God. And they're all passing away. They're going away. And not only that, they don't have any real ability to rescue humanity from from a pointless existence, from an inevitable death. These are not the things that we should be looking to. It's in knowing God that we come to know, well, we come to know who we are, don't we? We have a world who is, is wallowing in confusion right now because we've rejected God. When you reject God, all of a sudden, you don't, you don't, I don't even know who I am. We begin to know who we are. We begin to see why we're here and where we're going. It's in knowing God that we might finally be at peace and trust in his immeasurable love that washes away all the crud that we produce. And it promises us a place with him in eternity, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Knowing him is the beginning, but it's also the end. It's also the end. Paul knows that even though these Ephesian Christians have trusted in the work of Christ, what he did on the cross for their sins, they still have more to know about God. Because being a Christian is so much more than just getting your plane ticket to heaven. It's so much more than saying, okay, I got it, put it in my back pocket, and I'm good. But being a Christian is about the journey with God. God and to a deeper, more intimate knowledge and relationship with Him. There was a time in Paul's life when he thought he had arrived. He thought he was good. He thought that he had learned it all, that he had earned it all and experienced it all. Yet once he had this encounter, this amazing encounter with God on the road to Damascus where he was going to go persecute Christians... Once that happened, everything turned around and he looks at all the accomplishments that he had attained for himself in life and he just says, this is a pile of garbage. I I don't want anything to do with that stuff because it doesn't compare to knowing God. He He writes in Philippians, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, you don't get any more legalistic than that, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was excited. I was enthusiastic. I was even going so far for what I believed that I was persecuting people who were trying to corrupt what I believed. He writes, but whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may, might gain Christ. For Paul, Jesus wasn't only the beginning of the race. He was there at the end as well. He was who he was looking towards. He was the, at the finish line. The writer of Hebrews could have been Paul. We're not exactly sure. He writes this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus was the one who started us off, and Jesus is the one we're running towards. One pastor put it like this, The believer must grow in his knowledge of God. To know God personally is salvation. To know Him increasingly is sanctification. To know Him perfectly is glorification. Since we are made in the image of God, the better we know God, the better we know ourselves and each other. It is not enough to know God only as Savior. We must get to know Him as Father, friend, guide. And the better we know Him, the more satisfying our spiritual lives will be. As you and I come to know God better, Paul wants us to know three important aspects of our relationship with God. First, he wants us to know the hope to which we have been called. He writes in verse 18, Having eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints? What is the hope to which God has called you? That word called there, it's very, very important for us to think about. It's similar to the word chosen. In the sense that we're not doing anything to become a part of what we're called to. It's a force on the outside that is doing the, the work of selecting. Another important word is uh, ekklesia. The Greek word that is used for church. And that word is a word that literally means called out. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.9 that we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, he says, you were not a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. It's vitally important that we remember that God is the one who called us. We didn't call him. He looked on our helplessness and he decided to save us because of his great love, not because we somehow deserved it, 
And this is the only reason that we have hope. Because God has called us to it. And when we say hope, we're not talking about the kind of hope like I, I hope that the teacher doesn't give us a pop test today. Or I, I hope the waves are going to be killer today, man. Or, or I hope I don't get sick from eating at this shady restaurant. It's not that kind of hope. But it's the kind of hope that confidently looks forward to what will come about in the future. It's that kind of hope. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and I believe his prayer for us, is that we will know in a way that is more clear and tangible the hope that we have because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he's coming back for us. Amen? He's coming back for us. He's coming for his church. He's coming for the ones he's chosen, for his called out ones. He hasn't abandoned us. feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? He hasn't. We have a future with him. And he will come through on what he has promised. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. This is our future. This is our hope. Once we had no hope, once we were without God in the world, now we're born into a living hope because of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This isn't a dead hope. This isn't a false hope. This is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why do we need to know this hope to which we have been called? Why is this so important? I think we need it because it is so easy to get discouraged. We are living in a world and amongst a people who have no hope a people without God. And we're watching it on the news every day, aren't we? We're seeing it unfold. Sometimes we're seeing it uh, in the people we work with or, or uh, the people even in our own homes. Actually, we're bombarded more than ever in the truth seekers. Jesse was talking about this this morning, that we have, we have access to global information and not just daily, it's 24 hours a day if you want it. You can wake up at 2 a.m. because you can't sleep and you can be checking out what, what uh, someone's doing around the globe. You see the horrors. You see the tragedy. You see the, the destruction. The grotesque acts of inhumanity that are being committed. The threat of nuclear war. It's here again. I thought it went away for a little while. Now it's back again. Rising crime rates. What's going on? It's so easy to get discouraged, isn't it? And it's easy to get discouraged just the stuff that happens to us on a daily basis. There's trouble at home, there's trouble at work, there's trouble at school, we have trouble in relationships, we have trouble with finances, we have trouble with health. The troubling world, and that's not shouldn't be surprising because Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble, but he says take heart. I've overcome 
Christians living in this world, in this world, in our world, we need to be reminded God's called us to a hope. Paul wants us to know that. He also wants Christians to know that they are part of God's glorious inheritance. He wants Christians to know that they're valuable to God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, last week we pointed out that when we're talking about inheritance, it could be our inheritance, it could be God's inheritance, actually it's both. And here in verse 18, Paul zeroes in on God's inheritance in us. You and I are his prized possession. And God considers you part of his great wealth. Just as someone might point to how much money they have, or what kind of car they have, or how the size of their house. Oh yeah, it's right on the beach over there. And they point to all these things and say, see, this is what makes me so special. This is what I find value in. Just like that, God points to us, to you as a sign, as a sign of his great glory. And it's not because of anything that we are. It's because of what he has invested in us. We made it clear a few weeks ago that the only one that's truly glorious is God himself. But God points to us as a sign of his glory. And that's the way it was with Israel in the Old Testament too, Deuteronomy 9.29. But they are a people, they are, but they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. God's inheritance in Israel brought him great glory because of the fact that they were just so beautiful to begin with? No, because of the fact that him bringing them out and the fact that they are now his, that points to his great grace. And that points to the power of his mighty hand. He called them out. He brought them to himself. It was by his great power. It was by his outstretched arm. And in the same way, you and I are valuable to God because of the price that was paid for us. Because of what Jesus Christ did in adopting us. And how expensive that was to bring us to God himself. The place that we now have as part of God's family because of what Jesus did. And that makes God look really good. It gives him glory. That's how we become valuable to God. That's how we are an inheritance to him. The value wasn't in us. We become valuable because of the price that was paid. You know, trophies, I have have a lot of trophies. And uh, uh, if I put them up on eBay... They, uh, they wouldn't probably fetch that great of a price. 
trophies in and of themselves are, they're made of stuff that's not very valuable. I mean, all, at least all the ones I have, there's some wood, there's a little bit of brass in there, very little, and then there's uh, this little plastic thing on top that's coated in some type of uh, metallic-looking coating. It's not gold, it's not silver, it's not bronze. It's just something that looks like it. It's not the trophy in and of itself that is valuable. It's what the trophy represents, Right? It, it's, it's the work that it took to get that trophy that, is, that makes it valuable. In the same way, consider this. You and I are God's trophies, prized trophies. It's not because we're valuable in ourselves. It's because of what they, it means. This people that has been redeemed, this bride that we're going to get to Revelation and we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that the cost that it took to make this happen, that is where the value lies. It's beautiful. Paul wants us to know that. He He wants you and I to know you're valuable. How often do you look in the mirror? Or maybe you you bought something. Maybe you have to get up and do something like what I'm doing. And you say something that just came out of your mouth and it should not have come out of your mouth. Or maybe you missed something or whatever. And you just feel so low. You make a mistake and you just feel like dirt. Paul wants you to know the reality is you are a person of really immeasurable value. Because an immeasurable price was paid that you might be brought back to God. That's good. That is good. He wants us to know the hope to which we've been called. He wants us to know that we have incredible value to God. Finally, he wants Christians to know God's power toward them. Having eye, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. What does it mean that God has power toward those who believe? Paul wants the Ephesians to know how God's incomparably great power is working in them. The word, power, the word he uses for immeasurable here, it's the, the word where, that we get um, hyperbole from. You're familiar with that term, right? Uh, hyperbole. It's where you kind of make an exaggeration to, to, to make a point, right? Like, uh, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Or, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Or, uh, I've told you to clean your room a million times. A few of you have used that, right? I know I have. And we exaggerate. It's not true. I didn't ask a million times, but it sure feels like it. I want you to know it feels like it. (laughs) When Paul is using this term immeasurable here, he's not exaggerating, though. He's not doing it like we do. He's trying to help us understand that God's power, it goes beyond anything else. There is nothing that compares to it in all existence. It's power to the max, power to the extreme. Nothing comes even close to comparing with it. And nothing can overcome it, and it has no limits whatsoever. And notice Paul isn't saying that we somehow 
might gain this power. That somehow, you know, if you pray enough or have enough faith enough or do enough good things, that somehow you're going to get this power. No. He wants us to come to realize it's already at your disposal. Do you understand the riches that you have in Christ? It's already, God's immeasurable power is at your disposal. Why is that important for us to realize? I think it's important for us to realize so that our confidence in the hope that we have in Christ might shoot through the roof. That we might just be completely overwhelmed by who God is and what He has done and know with certainty that's where we're going. And yeah, we look around at this world that seems to be falling apart and I'd probably argue that it is. And yet God is sovereign over it and He is in control. And He is even now, even today, even out there as we are in here today, He is unfolding His plan. Where one day, he remember, He will unite all things to Himself. He has the power to do it. He's promised it, and He is going to get it done. It could be hard to enjoy the wealth of treasures that we have been given by God if we doubt His power towards us. If we doubt His power to make it a reality, right? If we don't understand God's power, we might be tempted to think, I don't know, this is uh, kind of iffy. I don't know, God, are you going to be able to work this one out? Maybe he's not going to be able to come through on the promises he's made. I think Paul goes on to give us a crystal clear picture of God's power because he just wants to bolster our confidence even more. Look at the last few verses here. Verse 19. Paul wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his his great might. And then he goes on in verse 20. This is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's immeasurable power, it has already been demonstrated time and time again throughout history. In the Old Testament, they would have pointed to creation. Or maybe they would have pointed to the deliverance of Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But in the New Testament, as the mystery has been made known to us now, we have this incredible demonstration of God's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is awesome. Death in the grave couldn't hold him. Not only did God's immeasurable power raise him, it seated him in the highest place of honor. No other ruler, no other authority, no other power or dominion comes close for all eternity. His name will be high and exalted, the most exalted. All things are under his feet. He has authority over everything. And there are no threats that he fears. No obstacles that he has not already overcome. And he's the head of his body, the church. This is really good news for us. Really good news. Because if Christ is all-powerful, and he's head over all things to the church, like Paul is saying in verse 22, then those who are called out 
and are part of Christ's body, they have a direct connection to the same power. My hands, my physical hands, and my feet, they can do things, some things. They can do those things because they're connected, they're wired up to this thing up here that sits inside my skull, my brain. Without this thing in here, as poorly as it works, they would be able to do nothing. They would just sit there lifeless on the ground. They would just start to rot and decay. We can't do anything without Christ, can we? Thank God He is our head. Thank God if we have a direct connection to Him. And because we are connected to Christ, who is the head, we have access to all that power. And we can march forward with confidence. Yes, things look like they're falling apart. Yes, there's opposition over here. Yes, there's legislation that's being passed over here that looks like a threat. You know what? It's okay because my God is powerful. Warren Wearsby tells a story of uh, William Randolph Hearst. You might remember that guy. Old newspaper publisher. He built that huge Hearst Castle in San Simeon. Maybe you visited it. The the pool, the swimming pool that has like little tiles in it made of gold. (laughs) I remember as a kid, I used to think, man, if I could only just like sneak into the pool and just, you know, with a little screwdriver, just pry. (laughs) William Randolph Hearst was an art collector and he had a passion for it. And he searched the globe to find art treasures, kind of like Indiana Jones, I guess. He came across. Uh, a treasure that he realized, it became known to him, and he knew, I have to have this thing. Whatever it takes, however much money, whatever we need to do, we're going to get this thing because this needs to be in my collection. So he gets his agent and he sends him out on a mission to go find this thing. And he searches the globe, we're told. And after a long period of searching, he comes back and he says, I found it. I found what you're looking for, Mr. Hearst. It's sitting over there in your warehouse. Man, if he had only known, if he only looked at the catalog to see what was already his, he could have saved himself a lot of time, a lot of money. Many Christians go through life making the same mistake. And we go through life as if we don't know the hope to which we're called. If we, we go through life acting as if we have no value. And we go through life in constant fear thinking, I don't know, I don't know if God is going to be able to come through on this one. We live in fear, we live in doubt, we live in isolation, feeling worthless, feeling unloved, feeling underappreciated, feeling unsupported, feeling ill-equipped, feeling powerless, feeling overwhelmed, isolated, I said isolated, discouraged, defeated. That's not the way the Christian life is meant to be lived. My prayer, really, I pray that this will be our prayer this week. That this week we will have, maybe, maybe even make a list of brothers and sisters here in our church. And we might be praying this week That same prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that our faith might develop as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
That, that we might understand more and more the hope to which we've been called. That we might understand that our, our value is incredible because God considers us His inheritance. That we might recognize His immeasurable power that we have access to. Would you pray with me? Father, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing you have given us in Jesus Christ, Lord. Lord, so often we look at you and we look at what Christ has done, Father, and we're just thinking, we're just thinking, oh yeah, that's what started us off. Now, what's next? But Lord, the reality is you saved us by your mighty hand that we might know you in a more deeper and profound way. Lord, I pray that we would walk through this life with the, the knowledge that we have incredible hope in you, that we have incredible value because of you, and we have incredible power available to us because you are our God. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.